0: Old pilot's plane tails, whoosh, bang, oops. Many rumours and whispers surround a bizarre event that occurred during the Cold War, not between NATO and the Soviet forces, but between two Royal Air Force fast jets. I was lucky enough to serve and fly with one of the characters involved, so I got the story from the horse's mouth. Please remember, dear listeners, that this occurred some 30 years ago, and my recollections may not be perfect. But imagine yourselves in the front lines of the Cold War, Royal Air Force Germany. A deadly serious game of World War III is about to be played out, and it is in the wee hours of the morning at RAF Wildenrath when ghostly sirens start to echo around the base, the barracks and in the nearby married quarters. Wives curse as their young children wake and start to cry. Their husbands stumble out of bed, grabbing their flight suits, pre-prepared overnight bags, gas masks and their nuclear, biological and chemical clothing. Running out of their front doors, they can hear the Land Rovers driving around the area with loudspeakers blaring... Tachyval, Tachyval, Tachyval. Exercise, Tachyval. Make your way to your place of duty immediately. This was the start of a regular formal NATO assessment of Wildenrath's ability to go to war. Assessors and exercise umpires had just descended on the base, waking the station commander rudely from his sleep, telling him to put his airfield on a war footing. The success of the next few days would be a mark of his ability and that of those under his command. At the squadrons, the engineers were already starting to bring the aircraft onto state. Live weapons were being loaded to the Phantom Fighters, four sidewinders and four sparrow missiles to each aircraft. Pilots and navigators reported to the operations room were allocated aircraft and told to put them on readiness. Around them there was furious activity as every part of every unit was being marked on their ability. As the exercise progressed, the war developed. An entire war scenario, from initial incursions to full-blown attacks and even nuclear Armageddon was to be re-enacted. Engineers dealt with bomb craters, medics with mass casualties and the guards kept out intruders. In the air, the Phantoms took on fighters and bombers from other units, playing the part of mass Soviet raids. The crews measured their success with simulated kills. For every bogey that they engaged and claimed as a kill, they must record the time, position, heading, height, type and missile used. But most importantly, they had to produce a film of the radar scope showing the target within firing parameters when the trigger press witness mark appeared. This took skill from both front and back seaters. In the real world, a sidewinder needs no radar to be fired. It's a heat-seeking missile, and all that is needed is for the pilot to centre his target in his weapon sight, listen for the growling acquisition of the seeker head, and fire the missile. From around a mile behind, the missile is going to take only three seconds to cover the distance, doing around two times the speed of sound, and the wreckage of a downed aircraft would be proof enough. But this is an exercise, and proof was required. The exercise target aircraft weren't going to cooperate whilst they were engaged. They dropped into the weeds, weaving to make the job as hard as possible. In the phantom backseat, the nav struggled to pull the target return out of the mess of ground returns as he used his raw pulse radar, which showed him every tree, building, and the very earth beneath him. But without that clear return of the target, the Tagival weapons assessors wouldn't give him the kill. So what to do? Well, let's see. If they could find an easy target to film say a Jaguar at 1,500 feet in the nearby Bruggen instrument pattern, they could take some film of it, because that would show up nicely, and when they found a real target, they could show the assessors the good bit of film. It wasn't like they were cheating, they would still have to make a real engagement, and being good fighter pilots, they would never claim a kill out of range. Back on the ground at Wildenrath, the exercise was almost over. The station had been working 24 hours a day, and everyone was tired. Many sorties had been flown with both live armed and unarmed aircraft. It was quite usual. Inside the cockpit, the differences were few. An unarmed aircraft has simulation plugs, where the weapons go to fool the aircraft into believing that real weapons are on board. A pylon carries a dummy sidewinder with a real seeker head, so that acquisition could be practised. When an engagement was carried out, all the attack checks were done, including making the master arm switch live and pulling the trigger. The crews, after all, were training for war. With live weapons on board, however, there were a few exceptions. A piece of white tape, was wrapped around the master arm switch to remind the pilot not to move it and the navigator pulled the circuit breaker controlling the trigger circuitry to ensure that no firing pulse could be conducted to the weapons a crew took over an unarmed aircraft and put it on state ready for scramble the pilot checked the form 700 and signed it taking over the aircraft from the engineers he and his navigator climbed up and cocked the vast fighter, preparing it for a quick scramble. Flopping down into convenient chairs, they waited for the call. The telly beef blared into life. RF Wilden, Wildenrath, alert one phantom. They listened carefully and their call sign came up with instructions to man a nearby cap, a combat air patrol. The crew sprinted to their aircraft and clambered up the steps. Strapped in, the pilot fired it up, but damn, there was a problem. This one wasn't going anywhere. Jumping back out, the crew shouted for a spare aircraft. Being late to achieve their scramble time was going to be a black mark. A hundred yards away was the spare. Grabbing the Form 700 while he ran, the pilot scribbled his signature, but not before he checked the weapons load. This one was recently fully armed. Indeed, he had to run past the yellow danger-armed aircraft signs that surrounded it. He did a quick walk round, noting the four gleaming white Sparrow missiles snugged into the aircraft belly and the four bright sidewinders on the wing pylons. Jumping in, he began his start routine. Before long, the two Rolls-Royce spades were gently snarling behind him and he taxed it out. The reheat streaked behind the mammoth fighter as the snarling turned into a full-throated roar and the aircraft got airborne. Back on the ground, an armourer, with a roll of white tape, was looking for the aircraft. Where the hell's X-Ray Mike? I need to put the tape on the master arm, he asked. Too late, mate, his sergeant replied. It's gone. The armourer shrugged and sloped off for a cup of tea before someone gave him another job. Airborne and transiting to their play area, the Phantom crew were alert and ready for some action. They were well-trained and had performed hundreds, if not thousands, of attacks during their careers. Their everyday drills were frequently practiced routines that they could do almost in their sleep. The navigator was looking into his scope when he spotted an aircraft not far ahead. 20 left, 15 miles slightly above he said. The pilot turned the aircraft to centre the target. They weren't at their cap location yet, but this would be a great opportunity to get a bit of radar film for the inevitable low-level aircraft they would soon be engaging. Let's get some film of this, shall we? He suggests, and the crew close on the unsuspecting target. Seen comfortably in that target was a Jaguar pilot, downwind at 1500 feet in the instrument pattern of his airfield. He was completely unaware that he was about to take the lead role in a very dramatic event. In the phantom cockpit, everything looked as it should. Missile lights glowed just as they always did. The selective sidewinder missile had started to growl as the seeker saw the glowing jet pipes of the jaguar bomber ahead. The navigator called the range as the target tracked down the scope. Approaching a mile, the pilot ran through his attack checks, his procedural memory taking control, and, as he was trained to do, put the master arm switch on. The navigator turned on his radar camera to record the kill and called one mile. I try to imagine what it felt like for the crew when, at that fateful moment, the pilot pulled the trigger and heard the entirely unexpected thunder of the winder coming off the rails. The almost paralysing shock and realisation of what had just happened. It certainly didn't take long to play out. The missile accelerated to over Mach 2 in its own length and headed unerringly towards its target. There was no stopping it, no way to turn something off or make itself destruct In desperation, the pilot shouted over the radio, Jaguar over Germany, eject! The missile's engine was nearly smokeless. By the time it reached the Jaguar, it was almost burned out and the missile was coasting. It passed under the aircraft very close to the jet pipes, and as the target aircraft cut the fuse's radar beam, it triggered the warhead. The explosive ignited and the rods surrounded it expanded into a supersonic expanding circle of destruction that cut through thin aluminium and aircraft vitals with ease. In the Jaguar, the pilot's day had just become a lot more interesting. He never heard the call and luckily no other Jaguar pilots on the frequency decided to obey the strange request. Behind him there came a loud bang and his centralised warning panel lit up like a Christmas tree with an unprecedented number of red and amber failures. He didn't have time to worry too much as the control column in his hand went slack and any efforts he made to pull up the fast-dropping nose of his aircraft failed. Reaching between his legs, he found the ejector seat handle. Settling his head back into the headrest, he pulled it hard and let Martin Baker take control of the next few seconds of his life. Dangling in his aeroconical parachute, he watched his tailless aircraft spiral down into the fields of Germany. In the Phantom cockpit, one of the hardest things they had to do next was to persuade someone they'd actually shot down a Jaguar. Trying to get the message across that this was a real kill and not an exercise one was near impossible, but by the time they taxied their aircraft in, their message was starting to get across. They suffered the inevitable debrief several times in front of Flight Commander, Squadron Commander and then Station Commander, before being sent home. Unsure what was coming next, they knew one thing, they had to make things good with the Jag boys. Their airfield was only a few miles apart, so they popped into the mess, picked up a barrel of beer and drove over to the bomber base. In their mess, the Jaguar pilots were gathering for their regular five o'clock drinks, and they looked at the Phantom crew with great suspicion, until the barrel was produced. Whereupon, pilots being pilots, much beer was consumed, and almost certainly all was forgiven. The story now becomes rather sordid. Realising a court-martial might be in the offing, the Phantom crew were sent packing, and once the RAF police became involved, they were arrested. The charges they faced varied from attempted murder, attempted manslaughter, and I imagine many others like firing a missile outside of a designated range or destruction of Her Majesty's property facing some potentially very serious criminal charges, and with little support from the IAF, the crew hired a barrister. Their Queen's Council, with the aid of experts in human behaviour, successfully proved that if you train someone to do a set of actions every working day, it becomes an automatic behaviour. If, every now and then, you expect them to do something subtly different... Uh, Eventually, someone will revert to their normal training. Without the visual cue of the white tape over the master arm, the pilot did just what he did every day of his working life. But what of the final safety procedure, the pulling of the trigger circuit breaker? The NAV did as was expected of him, but it was discovered that the additional books he carried, like authentication codes and war procedures, in his leg pocket, pressed against the CB, and it only needed to be moved a couple of millimetres to make contact again. It was never designed to be a switch, after all. The crew successfully fought their case and won. The pilot, disgusted with the whole affair, left the service but after a few years, rejoined. The navigator continued for a long and very interesting career in the Royal Air Force, and the unfortunate Jaguar pilot survived the incident without injury, only to have to abandon another Jaguar not long after. But that is another story. My thanks to Lucas Diamond, the Flying Kiwi, for asking me to recount this story.